All right, Mark 10, 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. All right. Woo! Happy afternoon, everybody. Nice, very easy, straightforward passage. Grateful for it. Um, so I'm David Michael Smingy. Um, I'm grateful to be here. I love what I do. Um, I get to be part of this church as a deacon. Uh, and Pastor Aaron is out today. He's traveling with his family and going places. I want to know, um, I want him to know that we love and miss him. And I want to go on record saying he has a great beard. And we all miss that too. Uh, and um, there's a lot I love about all of you in this church and what we do and get to do. And I'm grateful for all of you that we get to be here together. Um, one of the things that I love about our church is that we go through the Bible together and we don't skip parts that we don't like. We intentionally have designed our, our sermons that way, that we go through the Bible sequentially. We, we don't stop. We pick a book and go and we read the whole thing. And um, let's not take that for granted either. We don't pick and choose. Um, that means we get to go through parts that are challenging, that we may not necessarily like. Um, but I want to remind myself, too, that like, just because something is hard, I think my flesh and my part of myself just says that hard things are inherently evil or bad. It's just not true. I think some of the most hard and difficult things in life are usually the most worth doing. Um, so the Bible, of course, is a story about what God has written for us that's beautiful and that we see in it is beautiful. And this life that he presents for us in Scripture and the Gospel and the good news that we see in Mark is it just seems so impossible, but it's still good. Um, we, um, as we go through Mark, I've been titling each of these sermons for my parents who are visiting us today. We, we go through and we usually give a good news for whatever um, in each of these sections. And this is titled Good News for the Family. Um, I think there's good news in that there is redemption from sin and good news that God can take something, situations that I feel are hopeless and bring hope into them. And I pray, like, come Lord Jesus, come. There's so many different situations in life I can think of that seem like irreconcilably hopeless. You know, I can think of current events and the news and all these things that just are really challenging and difficult and painful. Um, I can think of families and my patients and all these difficult things that we go through as people and we feel the curse all the time. But I know that God is redeeming these things and growing us and sanctifying us in the sufferings and things that we've experienced. Um, 
At the end of the sermon last week, Joe gave a reflection, and he opened with, I hated the sermon. <laughs> so I think that was appropriate. I don't think you were kidding when you said it. And Joe's point was that there's a lot of difficult things and challenging things that we go through. And I, I, I do want to go back to the last chapter real quick to kind of build on what was said last week to then kind of lead into this week, okay? So we're coming on Mark 10, so I want you to flip back to Mark 9. And remember the parts that Joe and, uh, and myself have hated to read and that Aaron preached on last time. Um, one example of that, I think, is verses 33 through 34, which, as a quick refresher, is they came to Capernaum when he was in the house, and he asked them, what were you arguing about on this road? And they kept quiet because on the way they had argued who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Jesus has this habit of taking things, like things that we think are greatness and what greatness might look like, and he tells us what the truth of greatness is. And even when after reading this and having sermons on it and trying to live it, sin still finds a way to creep into my heart and say, uh, like paint a different picture of greatness. It's like kind of graffiti. Graffiti sort of ruins a picture and you have to keep painting over it or try to remove it. It seems impossible. So regardless, my idea of greatness is easily corrupted after hearing the truth about it, a sermon about it, and thinking about it all last week. And there's still a part of me that wants greatness to be tied to my wealth or academic success. Um, or political success or whatever. Um, my idea of greatness, I was trying to think like, is I want so much street cred, they like put my name on the signs, you know, that when I go to work, diseases just fly out of people and like I can solve everything and people think I'm the greatest, most amazing doctor on the planet and they name stuff after me or something. But that's just not the truth of it. You know, greatness, um, and the last part is what Jesus says, is you must be the very last. It changes our idea of like what we think reality is. Um, towards the end of that sermon, Aaron uses the word cruciform, you know, uh, and cruciform is this idea of conforming ourselves to Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Being crucified is painful, so I've heard, um, and I imagine that as we are crucifying parts of ourselves that need to die, our sin, it's going to be a painful and hard process, but it is good, and praise to be to God that he's done the work and has made a way for us to do that. So, all that to said, leaning into that cruciform idea, I want to highlight that. Mark 10 is what we're looking at today, um, and it's titled Good News for Your Family, and we'll get there, family. Um, so as a quick reminder, this is a part of Mark's gospel where Jesus is being confronted by the very people he's here to save. Um, it ends with him dying, but the truth is that he also uses that to conquer death, even death in a cruciform form. And this is an event, in that chain of events, that leads up to that. So... First verse. All right. So Jesus leaves that place and goes to the region of Judea and crosses the Jordan. Again, crowds of people come to him, and as was custom, he taught them. So I want to take a moment to stop and smell the roses for a second. Um, can you think of anyone else in Scripture who crossed the Jordan, you know, just for fun? Like, think of moments and the significance of that. Um, any moments in Scripture? You know, I think of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. I think of John baptizing people in the Jordan. I think of people crossing the Jordan when we got the law, and like there is some significance there too. It's just a beautiful kind of place and time, and I'm kind of a sentimental person when it comes to places, but I imagine there's some memories attached to that scripturally. Um, when I think of Jordan, I think of a picture of a promised land, uh, in a way, where the Israelites have come out of this wilderness, and having witnessed the failures and incompleteness of a law, they are now looking forward to a time and place where they'll have a paradise, but they don't quite get there. And I also want to draw attention to how Jesus teaches. Um, we'll get there, but in, like in the next part, notice how he uses both 
question elements as well as kind of teaching didactical elements too. So this is the next part, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of time. Next verse. Okay. So Pharisees, all right, they come up to Jesus and test him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So let's take some time through this verse. All right. First part, the Pharisees are coming to talk to Jesus, and I want to acknowledge, like, why? Why might they be doing that? Um, Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they say they're testing him. This is this whole part of the scripture is in the context of the Pharisees testing, and why might that be? Um, I think it's not necessarily because they want like a genuine answer to that question. Um, I think it's you know not because they're probably having marital maybe they are having marital difficulties. Um, is it because they have difficult spouses? Whatever. I think the heart of the question that they're asking is probably two pieces. One is they're probably trying to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, and two, uh, maybe trying to get out of the commitments that they've made to their spouses. So number one, looking into trying hard to trap Jesus, you know, thinking back to John the Baptist early in Mark, he was beheaded. Uh, why? Well, he was beheaded because he... Um, uh, basically spoke out against the leaders of the day and said that this king and leader, like he shouldn't have married his divorced wife or divor brother's divorced wife and end up having all marital problems. And I think partially the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus in trouble and hopefully have somebody else kill him like they killed John. Um, a dead Jesus is probably what they want. And if someone else will kill him, that's great. Um, so number one, kill Jesus. And then the other piece is this commitment piece. Um, the Pharisees are these powerful male leaders in a male-dominated society, uh, similar to today. I mean, you could essentially divorce anybody for any reason. Um, if you didn't like their cooking, you could get rid of them, or your wife. If they didn't like the way they did the dishes, you can get rid of them. If they had any problems, grounds for divorce. Men can divorce women in that time for pretty much any reason. And you can imagine what might happen to a woman in that situation um, and the families of those children in that situation. Um, once someone's divorced in that situation, like where would that leave them? It probably would leave them in places that are pretty destitute. Um, it's not like people wouldn't have known. The towns were probably smaller. The rumors were there. Like people would say, this is a person who's divorced from this spouse or from this Pharisee. Like everybody would know that business and they probably wouldn't be well off societally speaking. Um, so it's not like women had resources much in that time era either too. So as for today, you know, you might say, well, it's not like relationships are totally equal now anyway. There's decent data on, if you survey divorced couples, the folks that get, um, suppose money comes into a family, you know, of two people, like the female in that relationship is much more likely to leave her spouse once they have resources available to them. It's just kind of happens. The male, not so much, although it sometimes happens. Um, but there's still people who probably feel trapped in relationships for financial reasons. So what I'd like to do then is, um, just sort of pause for a moment and think about this question, though. Because I feel like, you know, as I went through undergraduate and time, and as I think about my patients, like we get this question as Christians in a world right now, like it really will happen to you that you might be asked as a Christian, like what does the law say? What does Christianity say about getting a divorce? Is it okay? Does the law permit a divorce? Like we need to be prepared to answer this question as painful and frustrating as it might be. Um, because our society is certainly going to ask that question. Um, so I do think we have a responsibility to look at marriage in a Christian context, in a cruciform context, um, a how God made it context, and that's what Jesus does later. 
Um, he, uh, oh my gosh, I lost my page, sorry. What marriage might and is supposed to look like, not what my government think it might look like, not how anything else might think it looks like, but how God has made it and honestly ask ourselves the question, how has God made marriage and how has it been designed for us? Um, and I think of when we got married, um, it was before God and his people. I signed a piece of paper in the back. I remember having to go, I don't know if anyone else had to do this during their marriage, and I like walk awkwardly to the back and sign a piece of paper with everybody. Like you have this big old ceremony for the family and the friends and everybody else and God, and then you like sign a piece of paper for the sake of the state. Um, I love orderly paper lurk. It's wonderful. Um, I love documents that produce value. Um, I find written words soothing. It's sort of a testimony to what's happening. Um, but at the end of the day, like, it's still the covenant relationship that we made in front of a lot of people and before God that we'd stick together, even though we knew each other was a giant pile of sin. Um, but <laughs> we still loved each other enough, and I remember, yeah, like, that we'd commit to each other, and that's what marriage was like for us. Um, and I hope that we should point to our God with our marriages, however broken and imperfect they might be. So, then you might say, well... What does a church have to say? Or doesn't they have an easy and do we do we as a church, big church, have an easy and straightforward answer to the question: Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I don't think it's just our society that asks that question. Um, let me see. I want to kind of just even in even as we were going through the ministry match kind of process, as we were looking to try and hire Aaron, we had to bring up this question of like, what sort of things we're willing to accept and go through as we look for a pastor. Um, we had oh, like hundreds of questions. I remember questions like 83 and 84 were essentially like, what is the stance that you're willing to accept as a church on divorce from a pastor? Like these things are not quite answered as a church yet. Um, there's a lot of differing views on this and this sermon's not gonna solve that question because people have still argued this for 2000 years. Um, and we're still wrestling with it. Um, I can think of all the cases where people could consider divorce. Um, it's not a sermon about that possible situation. That's just impossible. Um, but I will say that when I consider divorce situations or any situation involving difficulties in marriage, you need to handle those very carefully, seriously, judicially. Um, judicious being like precisely and carefully, and often with a lot of counsel from a lot of wise people. And we should not, just like I wouldn't approach marriage lightly, I wouldn't approach divorce lightly, or even that possibility lightly. So, let's see how Jesus, okay, who's being tested under threat of potentially death by uh, beheading um, and challenging society, answers this question. So, he answers them. What did Moses command you, he replies, and they said, well, Moses permitted, or in this case, um, allowed um, a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So I want to point out the quick change in verbs that the Pharisees do, because it's kind of fun. Um, they, they use the words, uh, Jesus says, like, what did Moses command? And they respond in a way of, well, they allowed or, or permitted. It's a little bit different in the way they kind of betrayed themselves and what they're thinking. Like, I don't think the Pharisees came to seek God's will here. I think they're coming to seek and find their own will and God's purposes. And like, we still do this. Um, I've listened to enough of my patients and friends and families go through divorce, and um, we still find ways very creatively sometimes to use the law to hurt one another, especially in a divorce situation. I had a patient one time who was a divorce lawyer, and he just talked about ways that he would hurt people with it. Um, and it's still awful. Um, 
Like, I think we find ourselves in these situations where just because something may be legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Uh, we can think of plenty of examples where things are legal but not necessarily good. Um, I think outside of the realm of marriage, you can think of you know, our country going through prohibition or um, like alcohol being legal but not necessarily a great thing. Um, you could think about uh, raising drug prices on orphan drugs is my line of work where people are dependent on these things and it's legal to do but it really is probably not the right thing to do. So legal, not necessarily a great thing. Um, and unfortunately, the law of Moses it doesn't really offer us like a great solution as to how to fix a marriage. Um, it only tells us that divorce is not great, it's sinful, um, and comparable at least in some cases to adultery. Um, yeah. Said another way, I think the law is great at pointing out sin, but sometimes it's not necessarily what do we do about it and how do we change that part of us in our hearts. Um, all right. So the next question then is, well, when did we get the law? Anybody remember? Like, we got God's law. Was it before or after the beginning? Before or after men and women were created? Before or after marriage was created? Well, Christ takes us back there. So Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of your hearts um, that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied, but at the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, and for that reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. So like, what would that have meant to the Pharisees at that time? Um, he kind of calls their bluff on what they're asking. It's probably very disempowering. Uh, like, what do you mean, Jesus? I can't, as a powerful man, divorce my wife anytime for any reason? Imagine what they're thinking. Or maybe it's more of a, uh, I actually have to make do on my commitments. Um, my wife isn't property or a tool or a thing. Like I should actually love my wife, um, not use my wife as a means to an end or trade her in for the latest and greatest model. Or I can't have power over these women. Well, not in the eyes of God, no. It's not how marriage was created or the point. And that's just the start. It's not just the Pharisees who then ask this question. It's the next people. So just to make absolutely sure, later, when they're in the house again, the disciples ask Jesus about this. And he answers, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So the disciples kind of do the same sort of thing. They're saying, like, did you really mean that? You know, I think they're probably in the same boat as the Pharisees. Mark is clear that's surprising to his disciples to have this news, too. As I ask the question a second time, are you sure, Jesus, did God really say this? Did you really go back to creation? What God has put together, let nobody separate, are you sure? So I imagine, if I'm a young single person reading this, like I might not even want to think about marriage. Um, I also imagine that as a married person, like reading and thinking about this, there's a lot of people who may have regretted that they got married. Um, and I think that this leads us now to a point where people would rather maybe not even consider being married at all. And in fact, we see a lot of people who don't want to get married. It's just easier not to deal with it, like the prenuptial stuff or anything or just the legality of it. Um, the commitment piece, people may not want that commitment. So rather than dodge the commitment um, on the back end and look for any reason to get out of marriage, people sometimes would rather not even bother with marriage at all. 
So I have many friends um, in my social network who are living with one another, living with one another, who aren't married. Um, and the critique of this is that there's just like a small sense of pseudo-commitment, all the benefits of it, but there really isn't like a long-term substantiated commitment, if we're honest. Um, there's no real obligation or moment, I think, in marriage that these folks can kind of like point back to and say, well, we committed, we promised in front of a whole bunch of people in God that we'd stick with each other. Um, that you can't, you can just back out if that moment hasn't happened um, at any time and for any reason. So you might also look at marriages where couples are unhappy. And they might be full of regret. And you might ask the question, well, where is the wisdom of God in this marriage? This relationship, it's not producing happiness. It must be broken. That's what marriages are for. This relationship is producing misery. Where is God in this? In the context, though, of like a cruciform living, like a willingness to go to a cross and die, what does marriage start to look like? It's like marriage, I think, is like tying yourself to somebody desperately and saying like, look, I have full knowledge of your sin. Or not full, like partial. Like we can go to another and say it's worse than you think. Uh, the dating process is sort of figuring out like what sort of sins this person might have that might, may or may not be compatible with you. Um, and kind of going what sins they have and what virtues they have too, like where they are and where they aren't. Um, we all have that. And for those who might be dating, you know, if you find yourself who someone like loves you at first sight, that person's probably a liar. Like, <laughs> it's just not true. It doesn't happen. Like, I, I would run away from that person. That person's it is worse than you think, you know, about yourself. If you're honest with yourself, like having someone just say you're the greatest person, un just infallible, we know it's not true. And I would run from that person, probably. <laughs> like, no, definitely, like you should, um, until they really understand the consequences of potentially what marriage might look like with you. But it is this sort of desperate addict of tying, act of tying yourself to somebody and saying, I'm not going to give up on you. So... I knew myself in my own sin, and I'm going to step in my own life a little bit. Like, I'm a stubborn dude who loves to memorize things and love to have things just, like, written down, and, like, that's me. That's my sin. I, I keep a record of wrongs. First Corinthians 13 says not to do that, but I'm really good at it. So I said, well, I'm going to make sure that I do my best to love my wife as I can. So I memorized it, and I said, I, David Michael Smingy, take you, Britta Allen Nyberg, to be my wife. I promise to love you today and forever, whether we're rich or poor, healthy or sick, and I promise to love you and cherish you until we are parted by death. Boom. Like, I wanted to memorize it so I wouldn't forget it. I stapled that in my brain next to, like, all this stuff I keep records of wrongs because I'm like, this is, in my head, I just had to know that this is me, you know? And then, like, Britta, in her genius, you know, wrote me a note once that I framed and kept. Um, and it's just a simple note that was probably something you put on a random day, and it just meant a bunch to me. But it was, uh, thanks for going to the hospital today and not complaining about the late early time or long hours, because she knows I hate waking up early. Um, I appreciate all the work you do and the perfection you want as a student. I'm excited to see what residency and after brings and how naive we were and what those things would bring. And I know that you'll be an excellent physician and that this dream that we have is going to happen and I love you so much. I'm excited to meet our future kids and to see you interact as a father because it's going to be awesome. I'm glad you're my husband and I love you completely, Britta. Right? And I love you. <laughs> like, what husband wouldn't want to die for that, you know? And give my life to it. 
I want to, and I want to be that husband that loves you in that way, and I want to be a husband that loves you like Christ loves his church, and I want to be that. So, I love you, despite any health concerns that happen to us in our sickness and in health, I will love you, despite any financial problems that will arise, whether we're rich or poor, I will love you, despite our lives changing in the cruel march of time, today and forever, I will love you, right? And I hope that as husbands and fathers that we can say those things to our spouses too and mean it, you know, rather than maybe look at our spouses and say, I'm looking for any reason to divorce you, right? Anytime. I'm going to hold that thread over you, right? That, that's not what's intended, but I think it's what the Pharisees kind of implied and the disciples had asked a second question about, like, are you serious? We can't just divorce our wives anytime for any reason? Well, no, you can't. Rather than saying that, and having that power over somebody else, what if instead you said, I'm committed to you, I will love you unconditionally, as Jesus did, and I will love you sometimes for no reason, <laughs> for all time. And the spouse says the same. Like that sort of love, like that sort of love, the unconditional, I'll love you for almost, for no reason, I'll love you. That's the love that Jesus uses as a metaphor for how he loves us as a church. Like, he loves us unconditionally and goes to die for us, even death on a cross. And that's the homework. Like, um, and that's why it's hard. And that's why Joe and I don't like sermons sometimes, because, like, it leaves you with that idea of, like, now i got to go and do the work of loving. And it's painful and frustrating, and it doesn't work all the time, and it's not, I don't know. We all have these like little nuances with our spouses and friends and family that just irk us. It's like, well, I love that person more than that, and I'm willing to work through it. But sometimes it gets bigger issues like financial and health and all these things. Quick aside, um, my parents are here, and my aunt is an author, and she wrote a book um, called Getting to the Other Side of Grief. We're not the first person in our families to experience a brain tumor. My uncle did first, um, and he went through a long time of suffering with his brain tumor, and his wife marched along with him. But I remember one story that she told me as she was giving me counsel was that I was advised to divorce my spouse because he had a brain tumor. Like, just leave the guy, you know? And it just kind of haunts me a bit. Like, we'll find any reason sometimes to even suggest those things, but like, I think the end of it is we need to learn and encourage one another to love each other like Christ loves us and loves his church. That's why it's hard, but it's good, okay? All right. So that's that part. <laughs> so, next part. Um, so people were bringing little children to Jesus from him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He says to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. So Jesus had to just, like, deal with adults. And, like, man, that's, it's hard to deal with adults. Uh, and there's this running gag in medicine with, like, if you want to become a pediatrician, like, you love the kids, but you hate dealing with the parents. Um, like, but why does Jesus say and do this? So the, the kingdom of God uh, belongs to such as these. And should I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Why does he say that? So I think Mark, like, intentionally puts these two passages together. Um, the Pharisees, who are adults, are much more creative in their approaches to life and how they can manipulate and use things like the law to get what they want and feel justified. 
maybe externally, but not necessarily internally. So a kid, on the other hand, doesn't really have any knowledge and nuances of this or laws. Or kids generally are pretty fairly honest in how they're feeling and about things moment to moment. If my kid's frustrated, I know about it. Um, if he's happy, I know it. And if he's sad, I know it. So kids, still sinners like the rest of us, but they still have this idea in them um, of right and wrong. And kind of as adults, we sort of follow these rules better. Um, but that may not change necessarily our hearts on the inside. Um, and just because I'm not necessarily sinning, you know, I may not be doing it out of a good heart nature for it, whereas I feel like kids, they do things out of a heart. They, they really genuinely, like, aren't as manipulated as I think we give them credit for, but they are. Um, regulations, I think of us kind of conforming to a law, like, they don't necessarily change our hearts. Like, you might follow the letter of the law to a T, but it doesn't really change who you are on the inside. Um, following rules, certainly, in Christianity isn't the point, and being blameless isn't also necessarily the point. I think the point is that we want to see our hearts change because I need a new one, and I know you all do too, but as we follow Jesus, we learn to do things for the sake of Jesus' goodness and wanting to be like him. We do it less and less because there's a law, or those things are helpful, but in the spirit sort of of Genesis, before we had a law, before sin entered the world, there's just goodness and a no need for that law. And I think we try and want to get back to what that might look like and be redeemed in that. So I think we see kids, um, that their hearts are probably in the right place, just like we see sort of like original sin in our kids. I, I want to say I sort of see like an original not sinning in them. Like they're, they aren't inherently perfect, you know, but they do have this purity to them in their faith. And it reminds me of Genesis and just that, like, genuine wanting to do the right thing and follow and, and be there, like sort of the way it ought to be. So my son has this like inherent piece of sin in him, but there's also this piece of creation in him that he's created in that's corrupted by sin, and he says he loves me. I think he genuinely means it. So he has this literal childlike faith where he depends on me to care for him. And I hope that that's a faith that we want to have, where we all want to be like Jesus for the sake of goodness, not for the sake of this law, and I want to get back to that. I want to get back to how we were created, what we were created to be, what we were created to do, and, um, and I want to do it because I love them and love God's people too. So, all right, I want to pray. Um, God, I'm grateful for all you've done for us. Um, I'm grateful that you have made a way. Father, I'm grateful that you do sort of set up these things that seem impossible. It does seem impossible sometimes to reconcile marriages that are going through difficult things. It does seem impossible that we love each other forever, and it does seem impossible that we can even love you, but you have made a way. Father, help us in our hearts, in our relationships, and with our friends and family and everybody else to not find reasons to hate people, to not find reasons to go through divorce anywhere, anytime. Um, but instead to look at one another and try and find reasons to love people um, and to love them like you do unconditionally. And it's so difficult and seems so impossible. But Father, also give us wisdom too when it might be time to separate people for a time or a season or for life if that's needed. God, we need you to answer these questions and help us work with wisdom through all these difficult things. Thank you so much that you love us and help us model the love to a world that needs you. Let me pray. Amen.